Hey everybody, my name is Dr. Andy Rourke and this is the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I got a great one today, a little bit different. It's me and my good friend, Dr. Dave Nickel. We are talking about some research that he's done recently and it is on what leadership actions actually affect workplace culture uh, and, and to what degree. And so if you're ever like, hey, you know, I know that leadership drives culture, but what does that mean? And what part of leadership drives culture? And what are the most important things for leaders in the practice to do in order to drive culture? That's what we're talking about. It is a great episode. Uh, two quick things I want to shout out. Number one is there is a language warning in this uh, episode. So if you really, really don't like salty language, uh, this might be one uh, to skip. And number two, I have got to give a huge shout out to Banfield the Pet Hospital for making possible transcripts. That's right. We now have transcripts of this podcast and the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast because Banfield has made that possible. It is to increase uh, accessibility to this information, uh, to be inclusive, to bring uh, all of our colleagues together and make these podcasts uh, accessible and available and useful to them. And so, um, man, this means the world to me. I'm so excited about it for 2022 we will have transcripts of the podcast you can find them on uh on uh, the uncharted website and dr andy work website um you'll see them through social media but thank you thank you to banfield for making this possible It's such a super wonderful thing that they have done so guys without further ado let's get into this episode and now the uncharted podcast and we are back. It's me, Dr. Andy Rourke, and Dr. Dave, my brother from another mother, Nickel, <laughs> on the podcast, standing in for Stephanie Goss. How are you, my friend? Really, really good. I'm, I'm sorry, Stephanie. I'm going to try and not wreck this thing. I'm is good. It? I'm good. How are you, man? <laughs> Stephanie is like, what have I done? Now, I I, when you said that, my adrenal glands contracted. <laughs> I got a squirt of adrenaline. I'm like, oh, no, if I screw this up then Stephanie's going to kick people are going to be like backside. people are going to be like he's no Stephanie Goss but we all we know that none none of us are none of us are Stephanie Goss here we go Dave uh so welcome so you and I uh, have known each other a long time um we so people people often know me from goofy uh vet videos and what they don't know is the first goofy vet video I ever made was at your urging and with you as my wingman and uh, we made it at the CVC conference uh, because those guys clearly have poor quality control <laughs> at the time. And uh, they allowed us to, to get in front of the camera and do what we wanted to do. But was, um, as I recall, that was after um, I possibly one flight of tequila too many at Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah. People think it takes a lot of planning to make, you know, videos that come out on well respected websites happen that's not it, true it takes a lot of time to plan them it takes just literally seconds to ruin it <laughs> so that's how that's how we got to know each other uh, and we've been friends ever since i i wanted to have you on you have got a uh, you've got a new study out it's called leadership actions and their effects on veterinary practice culture and so i was uh, as a fan of leadership and culture and veterinary and practice I wanted to have uh, all of those things are in the article. I thought that it would be a good time for us to get together and talk about uh, just. I just want to talk about what what you've been doing and kind of what you're what you're leading up to and what you're finding. So, uh, leader uh, leadership action affecting culture. Uh, mm. Let's 
start at a high level and just talk to talk to me a bit about that. Like what what matters about practice culture? I guess is my first question. And then, and then how does how does that interface with leadership? Okay. Well, I might pull it back one step further and just go, you know, why now? Sure. Why this? Because venue practices have had culture and, and leadership for a very long time. But it, you know, if you if you look at the world through the lens of some brutal truths, then you know you, you'd have to have been hiding under a rock not to have noticed that it's kind of been a really hard couple of years. And and so there's you know there's there's several brutal truths that we need to sort of face up to. There's there's pet ownership. And, and the impacts that COVID has had that are beneficial in terms of volume of cases, but but actually pretty hard in terms of an already stressed system couldn't cope brilliantly is being hit with uh, more cases. How many more is clearly a point for some debates um, because there isn't really a point of truth information source, but you know certainly more puppies around and and it, you know I think certainly over this side of the pond you know four somewhere between four five six percent seems to be about the right number um but then we've also got the economic uncertainty um inflation hitting us uh, the complexity of cases uh the process efficiencies that curbsides um caused culture is is coming into focus because all these things are causing pressure and then education and burnout and all this backdrop is just like this, this, this perfect storm. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing people burning out. We're seeing contracture in the size of the profession and we're seeing long range efforts to uh, alleviate that in terms of increasing class sizes, more veterinarians. But, but I just think that's the wrong, it's part of the answer, but it's a really, really stupid answer if we haven't fixed something that I think is at the, the heart of the problem. And that is that the market's kind of voting with its feet. Um, you know, we've had relative yeah. wage stagnation for a long time. We've got a completely different setup in terms of, you know, when, when I graduated um, in 97, 98, we, we didn't have such intense uh, scrutiny or glare from social media or the perception of it. And, and we, we didn't, necessarily have this the the sort of uh i felt like it was more of a safety net um we didn't have the ownership structures then that we have now so a lot has changed and and i think that's where for me culture becomes so so important because if we can create cultures where people thrive then i don't think we have a problem you know if, if you look at veterinary medicine does it tick boxes in terms of meeting human needs in terms of certainty in terms of uh, significance in terms of variety in terms of growth in terms of connection in terms of purpose it it, it ticks every box or it should do so why is it why is it failing people to the extent that we see this recruitment and retention problem that we've got and i think the answer is because we're not being intentional about cultures. And when we're not intentional about cultures, we get agendas, infighting, backstabbing, uh, toxicity of many different kinds, uh, all driven by fear, uncertainty, stress um, coming to the fore. And it becomes almost a, the culture becomes a cult of personality within practices. And it's the, it's the person with the biggest personality um, I think it was Sean McVeigh I first heard use the term the you know the mean girls, um, you know that rule the roost. Um, so it, 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 that that's what veterinary medicine has been, aka culture has been a hot mess that's just been neglected or been unintentional. So with the report, I thought it was really important to try and to put culture on a map, to define it, 
because it's it's a little hard for people to define and to link actions that leaders can take in order to manage culture proactively so that we can create a better future for ourselves as business owners but also for our teams and and really we're only going to create a better future for ourselves uh if we have happy teams so it felt really important to try and do that work to link it partly to empower those who feel a little bit hopeless or lost and what they could work on partly just to kick people up the butt to say we can do this yeah i i so i like I like where your head's at. I, I think this makes a lot of sense, right? You know, it's funny, you know, I've talked about this many times in the past. Um, culture in the workplace is one of those kind of, um, it almost makes you sound like some sort of a guru when you talk about it just because, and I think this is the trap, right? When you say to someone, uh, what's important about running a veterinary clinic? They talk to you about patient care. They talk to you about uh, average client transaction. They talk to you about being profitable. They talk to you, you know what I mean, about all of these things, medical standards, things like that. And culture and relationships um, and the way people feel about their job, man, that's all kind of some warm, fuzzy stuff. It's hard to get your hands around. You can't really measure it. You know what I mean? You can absolutely measure the number of patients that you saw yesterday, right? And, and you can measure customer service scores. And we do. And it's one of those things in life and the world where there is a fundamental requirement that people, that if you don't take care of, everything else is going to struggle and suffer. And you're never going to know why. You know what I mean? The beatings will continue until morale improves. And you go, you know, <laughs> you're just driving this so hard. But but until you take care of people, it's not going to happen. You know, you just think about, think about other relationships you have in your life where you rely on this person or you work with this person. And if you don't maintain that relationship, then everything else is going to be exponentially harder when you come together. And you can... You can wave your hands and lie to yourself and say, well, she's a professional, I'm a professional. And so we're going to show up, and we're going to do our jobs and we're going to get them done. That's just not how human beings work. And I think it's, I think it's less so. I, th- I think that there's a changing role in, in work in our lives right now. I'm really thinking a lot about this is that like, man, uh, our jobs, and I mean all of our jobs, not just vet medicine, but our jobs are replacing a lot of social outlets that we've had in the past. Do you know what I mean? How many of us look at our job uh, as our social circle, how many of us look at our job as a, you know part of our identity? How many of us look at our job for purpose? You know what I mean and meaning. And I go, man, we, our job is really creeping into a lot of our our lives. And so, the idea that we're going to put uh, our feelings aside and we're just going to be professional and and investing into the underlying relationship to make these people function together and and feel comfortable together. That's a, that's a, a big misstep, but it's really easy to make when you get myopic about this is a business. These are the metrics. This is what we're paying attention to. Yeah, listen, and it's a business like ours where there is so you know, there's there's so many things that demand attention, particularly as leaders. Uh, and I say that because not because attention demands are not high for everybody else, but you know the primary job of a leader is not clinical medicine unless you're clinical leader, of course, but, but most leaders right. are team leaders. And, and as soon as you take that role on, your primary job stopped being clinical medicine. Your primary job started being team uh, and team building and, and team well-being. Um, and yeah. of course, that's just, that just isn't a skill set that you're trained with. It's not something that has an immediate payoff. 
And it just seems to constantly yeah. be a thorn in your side. So clinical is partly retreat. It's partly highly addictive. It has immediate beneficial results for our well-being because stuff gets better uh, relatively quickly. And there's a fairly straight connecting line between the work we put in as a clinician and the, you know, the inputs and the outputs of resolved case, happy client, fixed pet and money coming yeah. in. It's, it's, if, yeah. if it, it's addictive enough before that's being the case and it's, and it's profitable. It's what our businesses are apparently there to do. So it's very, very easy to hide out there, but it's, it's such a giant mistake. So, you know, it's, Time and what we spend it on is is absolutely critical. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, look at how we're trained, right? We're trained uh, to 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 practice the medicine, and we're paid uh, on production. And neither of those things interface with team culture and leadership. You know? No. Well, it's um, it's funny. I, I saw a fun little infographic which was describing, you know, as soon as as soon as your measures become targets, they cease to be useful. And it, yeah, and it was a uh, you know. Uh, a, a measure of volume and, and, and the quantity of nails and they were just tiny, tiny nails that had been made or a, a measure of... Yeah, that was, that was, uh, the, the, the story on that is, uh, it was in, um, it was in communist Russia and, and, and this is a real story, but it was communist Russia and the, and the dictation and the dictum came down that workers would be judged on, um, at first it was, they were going to be judged on the weight of the nails that they produced. And so, like, we're just going to weigh the nails that you make, and that's how you'll be paid. And so the workers made these enormous nails that were completely functionally useless, but they weighed a ton. And then, and then, and then the higher ups saw that, and they were like, "Oh, no, 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 okay, we're going to fix that. We're going to pay you on the number of nails you make." And they just made it thumbtacks, thumbtacks. and just cranked them out. And, just, and again, I got it's such a great illustration of you pick these targets and say, this is what it is. And you miss the forest for the trees. Man, that's such a great story. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly also why the KGB exists. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. That's, there's, uh, it, it leads to interesting management structures, we'll say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, well let's, 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 let's get into this, right? So, well, actually, before we do, I, I want to ask you. Um, so we're seeing a growth in corporate ownership of vet practices, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in the UK, you guys are already, you guys are well ahead of the US as far as corporate ownership, meaning um, was it at least half of, of UK practices, right? Are Wait, corporately owned? Probably getting up to about 70% now. Yeah. And so I, my, my, my speculation is the US is going to be following that and will be at 50, 60%. That, that, that's kind of just, that's what my crystal ball says, but it's been, it's been a bit dodgy the last couple of years. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that we're going that way. Does that make the problem better, worse, or is it a net neutral? It's, it's, it's really, I love the question because it, it begs, it begs for an easy answer. And I, and the easy answer is it's, it's easy to kick corporate medicine. Um, oh yeah, totally. But, but, and, and it's, it's the answer that I think a lot of practitioners want to hear because it's, you know, the, 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 somebody needs to be at blame, at fault for all of this. But there, there, there are plenty of toxic independent practices and there are plenty of very well-run business units in yeah. corporate practice. I think, it, I think it is much more down to leadership skill and that comes down to individuals. It's not 
something that is particularly scalable in the way that technology is. Um, it doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't arrive quickly. Like heck, it, you know, it, it, it took 15 years for me to get to this point of being fairly average in my leadership career. So I see it, you know, uh, I, I started out with a, with a model of leadership that was pretty hopeless. And now I think I'm, I'm better at it, but it's like everything and everything suffers the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the more I learn about leadership, like I, I think I'm a reasonable leader, but the more I learn about it, the more I think, God damn it, I just have only started touching the surface of this. It would be so much better. Um, but then I look back at where I was as a leader. I'm like, oh yeah, no, but actually I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this now and, and I've got the principles down. So, um, but it's, I think, I think that's, that's the, that's part of the problem that, that, exists in that corporate structures in theory should create more space and more professional, more introduce more professional managers and professional managers should have been exposed to better leadership skills and training because in veterinary medicine, we don't get exposed to anything. Uh, yeah. The reality is that corporate managers are generally completely overtasked, have far too many business units to look after, a few and far between, and burn out just as fast as anybody else. And and so and also are coming from other business sectors that as much as I, I I don't I don't buy the line that we're different because we're vets. I do think veterinary practices are still businesses and you know almost everything mm-hmm. is still applicable from one business to the next. But we are we are where we are very different in is that we are absolutely purpose-driven individuals who chose this profession yeah. and, and we did not choose it for money. And we've got corporate corporate measures that are necessarily, particularly because of shareholders' growth and when you've got this much private equity mm-hmm. money swelling into, a, uh, into an industry, it has to be about money. There's the rub. So... I, I don't. I think that's an uncomfortable thing. That's a brutal truth for corporate practice to deal with. And if it doesn't deal with it, then it's yeah. got one hell of a balance sheet problem building up, and that, that that doesn't show up in a balance sheet, but is called the goodwill between clients and vets that's going to walk out the door. Yeah. But it's certainly that is a long way from saying that corporate practice is to blame for poor leadership. Poor leadership's been around for forever. Oh yeah. No. 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 Um, yeah. No. no. So, and I wasn't trying to tee up to. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to tee up and say, oh, you know, corporates are making this work. I was, I was genuinely asking the question, um, like, is this helping or not? I I think, I think my take on it is, um, I think that corporates, I I think everything you said is very true, right? So, so let's just own the fact that leadership on the ground plays a massive role in, in the culture of the practice that you work in. Right. And so speaking in sweeping generalizations of corporate, non-corporate, I I think you and I are both hundred percent in agreement that, um, that the, the, the culture on the ground, the management, and the leadership you have in the building that so far exceeds uh, what, uh, you know, what logo is on their jacket. It, it just, it just does. I, I think honestly, my take, and again, you know, you know me to be a perpetual optimist. Um, I agree with you. I, I, when I look at culture in vet medicine, I think the historic cultural problems in vet medicine have maybe been, um, it has been a passion, right? It has been this calling of like, this is who we are. We do this for the love. And and as a result, we struggle with burnout because we keep this as our self-identity and we lean into it. And my, my optimistic view is that corporations coming into our profession may help to swing the pendulum a little bit. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? We're seeing come in and they, they're offering uh, job perks, 
that weren't offered in the past. And they're pushing up wages in a way that wasn't pushed up in the past. And I think I think a lot of people find it easier to separate their work and their selves when they work for a company, as opposed to when they work shoulder to shoulder with the owner. And this is our little thing that we made together. And again, that's all speculation. But um, but I was just I don't know, I think you answered my question pretty well as far as it mixed mixed bag but um but the shifting the shifting landscape i do think is affecting some of the work experiences that we're having yeah and some some of those things i think and it's important to touch on you know those things are clearly positives there are i think one of the best ways to illustrate this uh i'll, I'll refer to another bit of study work that we're working on at the moment um but it's very, very easy to to increase pay uh, when you've got a big uh, bucket of money. Yeah, and a lot of independent practices don't have that bucket of money. Um, it's very easy to apply what could be seen as uh, band aids uh, fixes to issues. And I'm not saying that this is this is what corporate medicine is all about. I don't I don't think it is, but it's but it is still very easy to to put things that are sweeteners on there, which will not help if culture is rotten. And one thing that corporate is not right. has not got right at all and needs to deal with is the fact that when when a practice is acquired, uh, an owner stays on for a bit of time, but but frequently will start checking out because that's generally what happens when when you sell a business. Um, or, or leaves after one or two years, um, and then who takes over? And and it's not that common that it's somebody with a heck of a lot of leadership experience. So you're losing somebody with all that mentoring, all that goodwill, all that all that just that relationship know-how and smarts. And now you're bringing in somebody who's a three or four year old graduate vet. Well, Andy, when you were a three or four year old graduate vet, I don't know what you were like. But I know that I there's 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 no way that I I wasn't even doing veterinary medicine very well at that point. So to to have to do that and then layer in the stuff on top that's a big big ask. And so we're yeah. know, we are seeing the leadership echelons being younger than they were, and and asking them to take on a leadership role without great training, uh, in a stressful environment without the best of support necessarily. Um, at the same time as building a clinical skill set is an incredibly stressful thing, um, and so I, you know I, th- I, th- I think that in theory things can be better, but in practice, the shortage of talent, the shortage of available talent, and the retention of talent beyond that sort of really critical five-year point where you know we see people burning out in the first year and a half, and we see them burning out around about that five-year mark for slightly different reasons. Um, but you've, you know, the leadership echelon coming from a clinical base that has the clinical work established, that that baseline established, and then building on top of that the secondary skill set that is going to serve them, and it's a completely different skill set. That's a really necessary transition yeah. that we've got to get a lot of people through in order to to right the wrongs. I, I am utterly agnostic about practice ownership. Um, yes, I'm an independent practice owner, but I work with corporate corporate practices, doesn't matter. If, if they yeah. want to make leadership better, I'm very, very willing and happy to speak to them because the more people we can look after and give a great, you know, a, a great experience of veterinary medicine, the more people we retain for all of us to be able to hire. 
you know, so if I look after a vet and yeah. I'm a good stepping stone in their journey and they move on to your practice, I want them to go to your practice and go, that oh, was great working with Dave. It was, it was just what I needed at that stage in my career. And now I'm a happy, great resource and I'm excited to work with you, Andy. And, and, yeah. and, and neither of us loses. If I, if I blow yeah. it, I've had a bad experience with that individual. Maybe they leave, maybe they go to you grumpy and it's it doesn't, it's not a good long-term place. I think, I think leadership is important and it's that it's leaders enact or, or control or shape is probably the better word. I like the word farm actually, the farm culture. It's a very organic process. You know, you have yeah. to do certain things and, and go through a process in order to um, intentionally alter culture. Hey, Stephanie Goss, you got a second to talk about Guardian Vets? Yeah, what do you want to talk about? Man, I uh, I hear from people all the time that are overwhelmed because the phones never stop ringing. Um, yes. And I'm sure you, you hear from these people as well. You know, like our caseload is blowing up and the doctors are busy and uh, the phones just don't stop. They never stop. <laughs> that is a true story. I'm amazed by how, uh, how few veterinarians know about Guardian Vets. This is a service where you have uh, registered technicians uh, who can jump in virtually and help you on the phones. You can flip the switch and uh, Guardian Vets can jump in and take some of the load off the front desk and they can handle your clients and get them booked for your appointments and give them support. And it really is a godsend. Pre-pandemic, it was amazing to me how many people hadn't heard about it for after hours call help. But at this point, I can't believe how many people don't realize that they are offering help during the daytime as well, which I would think right now is a huge benefit to practices because everybody is shorthanded. Everybody is drowning in phone calls. And so we talk about it. We've talked about Guardian Vets a lot on the podcast. And every time we do, we always get somebody who says, what is that? <laughs> Guys, if you're not familiar with Guardian Vets, if you think that you could use some help on the uh, on the phones or up the front desk, check them out. It's guardianvets.com. And uh, if you mention our podcast, me and Stephanie Goss, uh, you get a month free. So check it out, guardianvets.com. Well, let's talk about let's talk about the interface of of leadership on the ground with mm. culture because we both sort of come yeah. back to this too is, is the biggest yeah. driving factor is going to be what is the leadership on the ground uh, as far as how how your experiences work so what are the so you guys uh, you guys put out this uh this new study um and i'll put a link in the show notes uh as well so people can can definitely check it out but uh, so when we talk about leadership on the ground what what are we talking about as far as uh as far as the the behaviors that matter like what affects people's experiences yeah, so so we we looked at four factors and their impact on on culture, and looked to assign a a, a sort of a, a quantitative score to what that action actually was bringing to the table in terms of of impact on culture. Um, and so the four factors that we looked at were a really clearly articulated vision, uh, the ability to manage time and prioritize particularly prioritize leadership activities, the ability to deal with toxic staff behavior, and the ability to hire effectively. And effectively mm -hmm. is one of those whiffly words. So it hire people who are the right technical and values fit for your organization in a timely way. Okay. okay. When, when you do those four things, your leadership score, we, we, uh, we created this and, um, uh, and and I'll I'll say a couple of things about the numbers in a second, but but the culture score of practices where leaders did not do those four things was a five point three 
out of a, a score of one to ten. Uh, the culture okay. score for leaders who did those things was an eight out of ten. And I think the slightly the interesting things are that we're we did these we did these surveys at two conferences, one across here in the United States and the other at. at uh, a conference in the US. So it's 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 great to get the, the data from from you know wide locations. But these were management conferences. So these are practices that are actively interested in these subjects who care yeah. to answer the questions. And also there's an element of self-grading here. So who's going to give themselves a three out of ten, right? Like so so I think the scores are probably scoring a little higher than they should, but the differential is clear. Like you score, a, you, you score slightly above a fifty percent uh, if you do not look after these things. That's a hot mess for culture, but you can get yeah. up to an eighty percent. And in actual fact, we we measure the culture scores for people when we've we've gone through and and worked with them on those four specific areas very, in much more detail. And we know that we can get them much closer to a nine. We get them to about an eight point nine out of ten once they once they do these things and they're executing on it really well. So, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the data is really compelling to say, well, actually, um, you know, the, the, the two challenges with leadership and with culture are one, what is leadership and what is culture? And, and there's so many things that could be defined as leadership. How am I best placed to spend my time? And so yeah. the, the message from this was really clear. You have to create a, a really clearly articulated vision that consists of a purpose, a mission, and a set of values. Um, you have to use that set of values to hire effectively. Uh, you have to learn to put down the things that call for your attention, like clinical work, and rebalance your time so you make time to work on things like vision. And if you've got some toxic people, and mostly those are values clashes, then you have to deal with those, regardless of how much pain that might cause you in the short term. That 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 toxic staff behavior was the number one impact uh, that 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 made the biggest difference out of all the, all four things. It was dealing with toxic behavior that had the biggest impact on culture. Um, but it's really hard. Like you can't set cultural tone unless you've got a vision. You can't create a vision unless you create the time to work on that. And you can't really hire well unless you've created the vision as well. Yeah. Okay. So all of that makes sense. Unpack for me what it means when you say the number one thing that affect workplace culture was the ability to, to deal with the toxic employee. Paint, give, give me some examples. Paint me a picture of what that looks like. Give me, give, give me, give me conflicting. Here's what I want. I want contrasting examples. Give, mm. what, what does it look like when a leader does not have the ability to do this or doesn't have the desire to do it versus when they do? So can you, can you help me see that, 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 that image? Yeah. So a good example would be the leader. Let's say, let's say you have a very effective technician on your team okay. and, and it could be a veterinarian. I don't want to, I don't want to beat up on technicians. Um, but as a team member, mm -hmm. choose your poison. Okay. So I, I, I'm going to think about, uh, um, a, a technician who is very influential, who's very, very good at their job. You know, they're, they, they know where everything lives. They get stuff done on time, um, but they don't like change. And they're vocal about not liking that change, but they're also behind the scenes. They're going to undermine that change that you want to put in. 
Uh, and so that person seeks to sow the seeds of doubt. They um, they tell people why they should resist the change. They 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 build up opposition to whatever thing that you're wanting to work on, and they create a them and us moment or situation in your practice on this one issue, but perhaps on many issues. Um, they might be doing that because they feel threatened by it. They may they may be doing that because and that's the number one reason why people resist changes because they're, they're scared. What does this mean for me? What am I going to lose? What I have less of something, uh, not get something. What does this mean for me? Um, and so, mm-hmm. and so we, we tend to resist things that we don't understand, even if they might be good things for us to do in the long term. So that, that person creates and sows distrust. Now they're not going to get everybody to resist, but they're going to sow doubt. People that might have gone with you are going to be a bit more reticent. People who, yeah. they, they're going to look for allies and, and other people who don't want this change, whatever it is. Uh, let's, let's say you're introducing a new anesthesia protocol and you want to start using different drugs uh, or you want to go to using fluids or blood testing uh, as a standard beforehand. But that, that, that narrative flows through and now... The doctors are not behind this. They don't actually, and you, you know, like when a doctor does not get behind something, doesn't fully believe in something, that doesn't come across. It's, it's disingenuous. And the clients see through it in a heartbeat. It's not sold well. It's, it's not presented well. And so the thing doesn't happen. And it's, then it's really easy. Oh, you know, the clients aren't really into this, so maybe we should stop doing it. Um, or that person, you know, there's the side chats that are happening and you walk in a room and everything stops talking. And suddenly you feel like you're an enemy in your own practice. That, that kind of carry on happens every day, up and down country. Um, you leave that person in place because well, they're not that bad and they're really good at their job. So let's just leave them be. But who really controls the culture? Who's setting the tone and the pace for the practice culture right now? It's, it's, not, you as, it's not you as the owner. There mm-hmm. is leadership happening, but it's not coming. Yeah from you you're leading by abdication because you just want it to be okay because it's really hard to hire technicians and if i lose this person they're going to burn this whole place down and that could be true i've yep. experienced it um now you you compare and contrast that against the person who gets it who understands where you're going with the vision their their agenda is your agenda because both your agenda is a shared purpose because you've cooked this purpose up together as a team. I think actually this is one of the challenges you have with corporate practice when you've got the big board level, you know, C-suite mm-hmm. mission, vision, values, all of that stuff. And, and then the, you've, got the, you've got the words, the values, integrity, and then you've got a whole host of people who are not necessarily interpreting that, but just trying to get by and actions start happening that start grating or violating those values and everyone calls bullshit and now we just do it. We're our own little enclave here. So we've got a very, very solid local culture of them and us against the corporate machine. And we're going to do veterinary medicine really well, but we're not aligned really with that thing up there. Our purpose is we're a merry band of swashbuckling pirates doing our thing Mm. on the high seas, but we're not part of the, the Navy as it were. So back, back to your example. So that could be one toxic behavior. You, you could have another person who is a, a veterinarian. Let's choose a veterinarian who explodes, who's got anger issues. Mm-hmm. They're really, really good at their job. They, they create tons of value in terms of doing cases, but they blow up or they, they bitch and they moan about the technicians uh, openly 
to a colleague, to mm-hmm. another vet. And it yeah. just crushes, like the, te- the te- technician team lose confidence or they refuse to work for that person. Or it's so stressful, you've got absenteeism or people not showing up, to, you know, uh, not, not, you know, they're calling in sick, uh, they're, they're leaving. You've got a merry-go-round of staff walking in the door. These things hammer culture. And, and of course, mm-hmm. every time something, someone new comes in, the team reverts to the, the storming phase of Belbin's team uh, curves. You know, as you've got uh, forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning uh, on the uh, Belbin's team uh, development curve. Uh, and and any time a team go through change, you go through this curve. So if you've got a toxic teammate, your team is always stuck in the storming phase. Uh, if you've got mm-hmm. team members leaving and coming in, that will that will add to the storming phase because nothing ever gets to be normal in a way that's functional. Um, or, or maybe, and actually, I would put myself in this bracket as I would describe myself. Not it would never have been described as toxic, but I was always going to do it my way. I was really resistant yeah. to doing it uh, according to the 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 process, like. The, the 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 standard operating protocol not me sir no way i've yeah. been taught to do it this way and that's the way i'm going to do it or hell mend you that's that's toxic looking yeah. back and i think god that was really egoed up behavior well I think, I think you and i both came from that place um it is i think it's part of the the growth of a leader right especially if you're someone who makes your own thing or you start mm-hmm. the practice or you start the business and i think that's both of our personalities is you know, we have very strong ideas about how things should be done and how we're going to do it and how this is going to work. And they're driven by passion and they're driven by, by a vision. Yeah. I I think, I think the life cycle of the business is, I think that works really well up front. You know what I mean? When you're getting something started, that person who says, Nope, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. Um, they're really valuable. They really get things up and going. I think you and I both had the painful experience of growing our businesses to a place where uh, it's not just us anymore, you know, and it's not just us and two or three other people. It's enough people that um, you can't just do what you want to do anymore. There's too many people affected by the ripples when you splash around. And so process ultimately rises up. You know, when you, when you zoom out and you look at startup culture, you know, and entrepreneurship and things like that, that is a classic lifestyle or life cycle of the entrepreneur is you come in, you move fast, you break things, you do things, you do them in weird ways. Um, and you get the energy up and, and you create the experience. Yeah. And then after that, generally process people sort of take over, you know, and we standardize and we streamline and we systematize. And a lot of times the entrepreneur sort of people, they they either they either grow into that system or they chafe against it and they and they and they often leave and so I, yeah. I think that that is that is that is a life cycle growth project for a leader. It, well, it, it, it definitely is, um, but it's you know that's a real challenge for depending on what you're. You know, if you're in a startup vet practice, that's that's where it will be for many of us. And if you've got a more uh, you've got a more mature business, and now I I own a. You know, a clinic that's been around for fifteen years. Um, I've I've not owned it for that long, but but it's you know it's been there for a while, and this team mm-hmm. has been together in one guise or another for 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 several years now. Um, that's a different beast because you're you know I, I don't go in it. I'm not there ever, so the cultural tone might be set by me, but that culture is formed by a team, a group of people who we came together and said, right, what do we want this practice to be about? And we, and we literally built the vision, uh, you know, a four-year vision in this case, 
and, and everybody was involved. All the senior leadership team was involved. And so now everybody's behind it and we want that. We're going to make that thing happen. And lo and behold, it's happening. And, and do, do we hire people sometimes that aren't great fit for it? Yes. But it's really obvious really soon. And, and the team has the confidence to say, this is not the right fit. Time to move, move on from that person. Or, or yeah, and, and it's, and, and it never goes straight to that, but we're also really clear about this is the expectation. This is how we do things here. And, and these things are, you know, the, the hiring effectively, you know, there is not a job ad that doesn't reference our vision and values. There's not a person works right. that hasn't been through a value assessment and three or four other steps in a recruitment process. Um, so it, it gets it right more than it gets it wrong. Uh, and, and, and this is what we've got to do to make veterinary medicine sustainable. It, you know, it's been sustainable from a profit point of view for forever. It's been sustainable from a clinical point of view for forever. We take the boxes there. It's not been sustainable from a team point of view. And increasingly, business owners now are struggling with sustainability. And that's partly what's driving them to sell practices because it's just too hard. But the difference between a practice that is an absolute delight and a practice that's a total nightmare is the vision because and culture flows straight out of that vision like it's just not this ethereal oh, i don't know how to make culture no, it's really easy create your vision and, and a part of that vision will be articulate your values i wouldn't have more than five or six don't just articulate them in a word articulate what that word means in your culture in, in your setting and then tell everybody what those things are better still come up with that code of conduct yourself because that but if you've got six values and you've got three things that you three definitions of what that word means integrity what does that mean uh yeah you know best practice what does that mean uh what does innovation mean for you because it means something different for me than it does for you and that's fine sure um but just define it and then and then stick to it and i was onboarding a new team member today and we went through part of the training exercise. We, you know, we talked about what our, what our values are, what they mean, when you should use them, um, and you know, and it, it, I just I, I cannot dream of bringing anybody onto a team where we we do not yeah you could call it brainwashing or indoctrination or onboarding or whatever. But but there is no way that anybody... indoctrination's gotten a bad rap. <laughs> indoctrination's gotten a bad rap like like that is uh that is a loaded word these days but uh, like brainwashing that's, that's sort of what we're talking about <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah i mean brainwashing has been out of favor for a while now but oh, it's coming back uh it's all, it's all, it's all cyclical. <laughs> so yeah i mean look it it, it kind of you know pulling back because there's 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 just a lot that you can kind of focus on it's it's interesting the, the things that came out of the study that were really interesting to me were there were certain, I don't know if I should call them hidden gems or complete shockers, uh, maybe both. But if you if you at a conference ask people what their vision was, um, it, it's funny. Like we, we found forty, just about forty five percent of practices have absolutely no vision at all. I.e., they're just showing up and doing veterinary medicine day after day after day after day. It's like, wonder people are exhausted yeah um three quarters of yeah. practice owners have no time for leadership behaviors interestingly only four out of that, 10. Always blo- that always blows my mind right like that's that's the working in the business versus working on the business trap that our friend peter weinstein likes to talk about you know well and it's and it's so 
it's so, so clear why it happens is because the clinical work that they're spending time on is so overwhelming and so never ending. Uh, and yeah. so what they know what to do, it's the comfort blanket. And it also generates yeah, it, revenue. It is. So, but it's oh yeah, you can justify you can justify seeing cases all day long, right? And and Absolutely. the other part, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. Well, and it's the sunk cost thing too. You're right. Like I gave eight years of my life to do training to be able to do these things, and now you're telling me I don't, I shouldn't do them. Uh, someone else should do them. Like that feels wrong. I think at a deep level, but you're like, yeah, that is what I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and if, 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 you know, 40% of practices are the ones we spoke to have what they describe as toxic behavior. And that's, you know, that now, you know, coming back to your point it's you know, the reason people don't deal with it is because they're scared to deal with it. We're conflict averse as well, mm-hmm. or, or, oh, it's not the right moment. I'll just do that in a day or two. And then the clinical work gets in the way again. So each of these four things, it's really hard to separate them out. But the the number one thing is for the the, the first step is for the leader to take the mental leap to say, I'm going to put this thing here down. Not completely down, but let's say instead of doing 90% clinical and 10% absolute firefighting, uh, how about I drop to 60% clinical and I can do 10% leadership and 20%. Yeah. 10% firefighting, 10% proactive team management. What would happen if I did that? It, oh, I might have to hire somebody new. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And then you might also yeah, see your family and your friends. Uh, and, and you know, it's great. You can't be the richest person in the graveyard. What's the point yeah. in that? The, you know, the, the, well, the other part too, that again, it kind of goes back to that whole like, you know, working on the relationship is not immediately visible and apparent. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there's other things that are clearly much more visible and, and, and measurable. Uh, but that, that culture work, that relationship work, same, same thing with, you know, people are like, oh, you know, but then I'd have to hire someone else. And I would say, you know, every time I have hired someone else, I have gnashed my teeth about it. And then my business has expanded to, you know what I mean? To generate that revenue plus, plus more. Um, it is just, you know, getting to that place where I go, God, I need more help. And then getting more help uh, and getting the right help. It has always worked out. Well, right. And and that's because you've invested time and energy and the skills to allow that to happen. So if you, if you fear it and then you hire badly and it, the person doesn't work out, it's too easy to say, well, that didn't work out or give up. But there's millions of businesses around this world that are working just fine on that basis. So why are you special? The answer is you just didn't focus on the right, right skill set. But if 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 you take the time to think about why you need this person and you take the time to think about what skills they need and what values they must have and how you're going to assess, you know, select for those, and then you put time and energy into that recruitment process. I describe that as $10,000 or maybe even $100,000 in our work. The problem is it doesn't have a dotted line straight to the the, the, the revenue line of right. your accounts or the end-of-day takings. In fact, it has a negative impact on your immediate end-of-day takings because you're not doing clinical work when you're doing it. So it hurts right. a little bit, and then you grow because that person shows up 
does a good job and now you've got space. And then you've just got to deal with your guilt about not doing all the work in your practice because that's another thing that vet, vet leaders carry. You know, we, we, we see a source of power being able to do everything and know everything and that's how people respect us. And as, uh, and, and as we help people grow and we bring people into the business and suddenly there's not that much pressure on us, it's like taking time off. How many veterinarians feel bad about taking time off? They feel edgy. They feel like, oh, I should be doing something. And it takes you, mm-hmm. it takes me five, five to seven days to get over that feeling of being away from work. And, and then it's I'm over. Like, and it's time oh, to go back. I'm good. Right, exactly. It's time to go. Like, I'm yeah, good. It's like, I have one day and then I go, and then I go back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But if, as, as a leader, if you can, it, listen, if you love doing the clinical work, get somebody in to do this for you, but commit 10% of your time to working with them so that they, the culture they want to grow on your behalf, you're not one of the people resisting it. If you love big picture strategy work, put some of the clinical down and get into this stuff because it is incredibly good fun being in charge and, and having this blank sheet that is your business. Our businesses don't own us or they shouldn't own us, but frequently they do. They feel like they do. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Uh, Dr. Dave Nichols, yeah, Dave Nichol, you and Dr. Dermot uh, McNerney wrote Leadership Actions and Their Effects on Veterinary Practice Culture. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to learn more from you? Uh, so two best places. So all of the work that we're doing is published on the Vetex International website at vetexinternational.com. Uh, I've decided, so my New Year's resolution this year, Andy, is to spend less time on Instagram. I've decided I'm going to gonna make Twitter my place to hang out this year. That I sounds got, like a terrible idea. Twitter? I, You're going to hang out on Twitter? What a cesspool. Mm, I'm sorry, I, know. I have very strong negative Twitter emotions. I know, and it's, I, I, I feel yeah, that Instagram feel like is negative. Let me could, could be a horrible like, thing. Florida's too hot. Let me go to hell. Like that's how, <laughs> that's that's the analogy that I heard. Anyway. Well, I I'm enjoying the conversation and a bit of the back and forth, and obviously, I feel like that's going to be about a month until I feel absolutely like this was a horrible <laughs> idea. Um, but I'm I, I also uh, yeah I'm I. At Dr. Dave Nichol, spell N-I-C-O-L, anywhere on the socials I will be, but uh, I will be actively managing my Twitter account. Others will be actively managing my other accounts. So if you want to reach me, Twitter's the one to go for. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Thanks for being here, my friend. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andy. Appreciate you, brother. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks to Dave Nickel for being with me. I love that guy. Uh, it's, it's always hard to schedule because he's on the other side of the pond uh, talking to me. And again, I, I appreciate him making time to, to hang out. This episode will be on YouTube. That's right. Uh, Dave was very gracious and let me use the video feature on our software for the first time. And guys, I'm playing around with the idea of putting some podcasts on YouTube. I know a lot of podcasts um, get a lot of listenership. A lot of people like to be on YouTube and they can consume podcasts that way uh, with with sort of the video component of it. Um, it's not super exciting video. It's just me and Dave talking to each other, but, um, but we'll see how it goes. If you are a big a YouTube person, you're like, man, I just wish that Andy would put some podcasts on YouTube so I could just listen to them there. Uh, check out the Dr. Andy Work YouTube channel and we're going to see how this goes for a little while. So anyway, exciting times over here. Gang, take care of yourselves. Be well. Talk to you later. Bye. 